Hello, this is Sandra Hindman, founder and president of Les Enlumineurs. We specialize in manuscripts, miniatures, historic jewelry, and other small-scale works of art from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Welcome, and please enjoy today's podcast. Okay, hello. I'm Sandra Heinemann, and I am here today with Sonia Drimmer for a new podcast in our series. Uh, we've had very varied podcasts. And so first, I think I'll let Sonia um, introduce herself and tell you listeners who she is and what she works on. Well, hi, Sandra. Thank you for uh, having me on this podcast. It's um, a joy and an honor to be here. Uh, as you said, my name is Sonia Drimmer, and I am Associate Professor of Medieval Art in the Department of the History of Art and Architecture at UMass Amherst. And uh, I teach medieval art from Europe, Northern Africa, the Mediterranean Basin, from circa 300, so really late antiquity, uh, to 1500, even getting into the 1550s. But my research is principally concerned with medieval manuscripts, illuminated manuscripts, uh, from Northern Europe. And for the most part, England is really what I publish on. Right. Um... And I think we decided to call this something extremely broad, which was roles, codices, which are volumes, um, bound volumes, codicology, and pen to press, or manuscripts and print, all of which you've worked on. So although you, I guess, describe yourself as an uh, art historian of English illuminated manuscripts, the topics you've tackled are impressively broad. Why don't we start with the English part? And you could tell us a little about, let's just start with roles too. And you can tell us a little about your work on English genealogical chronicles. Yeah, I, I'd love to do that. I think the, the easiest way into all of this material, if your audience will indul indulge me, um, is to give just a little bit of biography as to how I came to all of this, and particularly to specialize in, in English manuscripts, which I think um, English illuminated manuscripts. I, I think some people might, some people might be surprised to hear that because the study of English literature is almost like we can call it one of the cornerstone of the humanities in, in American uh, academia. It's certainly a popular subject still. Many undergraduates major in it. Um, late medieval and particularly 15th century manuscripts from England are not all that popularly studied by art historians. Um, and when I was coming up as an undergraduate, um, I did my undergraduate degree at Brown University under Evelyn Lincoln, who's a, actually a, a Renaissance scholar. I was a double major. I did art history and medieval cultures. Uh, and I really, really wanted to triple major in English, but I thought I was too good for the required intro classes, which was my fault. I should not have, I should not have been that precocious. But I ended up doing a dissertation, a the, uh, an honors thesis on uh, an illuminated manuscript of Middle English literature that had never been looked at or considered by art historians. And I did it with Beth Bryan, who taught me a full, I took a full semester of paleography with her. She's amazing in my lodestar. And with Evie Lincoln. So this opened up a whole world for me. And fast forward to when I was doing my PhD at Columbia, 
funnily enough, with an architectural historian. And with Stephen, with who did you? With Stephen Murray. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Which I think might also, um, I don't know if it explains, but I credit it with giving me the, the courage, let's say, to be broad in my interests because he required, we knew I was going to do manuscripts. It was pretty clear by the end of my first year, I wasn't changing. I wasn't going into architectural sculpture. But for my comp exams, you know, before moving on to dissertating, I was required to do architectural sculpture. So I had to know my history of architectural sculpture in France and England, um, Gothic. So that which was fabulous. And I'm, I'm so pleased that I did that. But when I went to, to England to you know, really dig in and do my research, I became a pre-doctoral curatorial fellow for a, an exhibition of manuscripts at the British Library, um, Royal Manuscripts, the Genius. Oh, that famous exhibit. Yes. Oh, how lucky to work on that. I was, I mean, that was the moment when I feel it was the, the, the turning point in my academic career when I felt that I had moved from being a student to a scholar because they just, uh, it was effectively, you know, it wasn't this casual, but it felt almost like they were just giving me um, an array of manuscripts and saying, have at it, which to a degree it kind of was because um, there were a bunch of manuscripts for the catalog that hadn't been claimed um, for people to write their entries on. And so one day we had this dream of a day in which there were all of these manuscripts out on a central table in the, you know, Mm -hmm. behind the scenes. And they brought us all in, those of us who were authoring the catalog, and they said, well, which ones do you want to work on? That's great. (laughs) And so the really, you know, the, the, now I'm finally getting to the answer of your question is um, one of the things, which actually this was a loan object, they sent me off to Oxford to look at it, was um, a roll, a prayer roll made for Queen Margaret of Anjou. She was the wife of Henry VI, so she married him in 1445. I was so taken with it. I was so, I everything I'd learned about manuscripts, I'd learned about codices. And again, these are bound volumes, books as we know them today. Uh, and I came upon this roll and it really just... Um, it surprised me. It delighted me. And I went on to author a catalog entry. And then I wrote an article for guests. It was my first big article, let's say. Mm. Um, so that's how I came. That's how I came to really consider myself um, a codicologist, someone who is interested in the physical structure of manuscripts. Can I just back up to the exhibit? I've forgotten. Is it Scott McKendrick and Kathleen Doyle? Are they the two primary yes. lead authors for the exhibit? Yeah. Mm -hmm. They are. I should have named them. Yes. So Kathleen Doyle and Scott McKendrick are the primary editors and authors of the catalog or the introduction and the major, the major essays. And then there were a team of, oh gosh, I want to say 15 of us, maybe, maybe Mm -hmm. a a bit fewer. And there were two postdoctoral fellows who wrote their contributions were next in line after, in terms of quantity, Johanna Franska and um, Deirdre Jackson. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. So for me, it was just, it was fantastic getting to learn from such brilliant manuscript scholars and really just digging in and having my my eyes and hands flooded with so many manuscripts and teaching me about codicology and and the variety of manuscript illumination that um, I was really not focusing on because I was so intense on my own dissertation on an illuminated manuscript of a Middle English poem. Why don't you tell our listeners how you would define codicology? Because what I was going to ask you is, I was going to say codicology, is, it's different when you do codicology of a role than codicology of a codex. And 
Um, and maybe I think like a lot of people may not know what codicology is, except maybe some of our more academic listeners. Right. So codicology, it's a funny term because it comes from the word for codex, which again is um, a bound book. It's made up of one or more uh, stitched gatherings, what we call choirs of pages um, that have typically a protective cover or a binding. Um, And so codicology is the study of the physical structure of a book, how all those pieces came together. For lack of another term, I guess we could call it rotulology. (laughs) You heard it here first, maybe. For lack of a better term, um, I use the same term to uh, apply to my understanding of the physical makeup of not just codices, but also roles and a variety of different bibliographical or bookish formats that are neither one nor the other, because there is a great diversity of book formats um, and book physical structures Right, right. In, in the Middle Ages and early modernity up to today. And so like your role must have been composed of separate large sheets stitched together. Instead yeah, of so, stitched together one one after another, instead of folded and um, stitched together as groups. Exactly. Um, sometimes they're stitched together, uh, and sometimes they're adhered with glue. Both methods are used in the context that I look at, which again is late medieval England. And um, in this case, it's funny you mentioned the size. Um, one of the key insights that led, or let's not call it an insight, one of the key observations I made that led me to write an article, a much longer article about the, this so-called prayer roll, is that every single surviving prayer roll, so again, these are rolls that would have been really handy to use. You can roll them up small, put them in your hand, hold them close to your body, even wrap them around your pregnant belly for a safe delivery. We call those birth girdles. That's another genre written about really beautifully by Catherine Heinle. Um, Those are small in terms of their width. And in fact, um, I used my own hand. I'm five, four for those listening here. I have kind of, I have, I have smallish hands, but the average woman's hand um, is roughly 18 centimeters from thumb tip to pinky tip. And the Margaret of Anjou prayer roll is almost 23 centimeters in width. Uh, And and, and it was so out of the ordinary uh, that I started to reconsider whether it really was a prayer roll like other prayer rolls. And by comparing it to the widths of other formats of rolls, those that were used for propaganda, like the king's genealogy, where you see his family tree going from the top to the bottom of the roll, as well as government documents also used in the roll format, um, I, I argued, I hope convincingly, that this was more like an object that was probably devised for public ceremonial presentation to the queen during any number of ceremonies or pageants in which she might have participated. Yeah, um, I mean, I think you just touched on one of the most interesting things about roles, which is, you know, the survival of the role from survival, if we want to call it that, from early Christian times, um, when it was the only form of the book, pretty much, to the later Middle Ages, sort of begs the question of use. And you've just touched on the um, public use of, um, of the role format, that it allows not one person to look at it or turn the book around, but they can be hung up, displayed differently. And that's, in fact, your work on on the political roles, too, the chronicles. 
Do you want to talk a little about issues of display? Yeah, I do. Um, and I'll and I'll backtrack a little bit because you mentioned the role in in antiquity and late antiquity. One of my hobby horses, one of my my favorite issues to talk about are these narratives that we've received that need to be revised, which is to say narratives that insist on the obsolescence of the role. We have this evolutionary, this narrative that we inherited from the 19th century that, you know, we originated, so civilization originated with alphabetic writing, and then we had roles, and then they were superseded by the codex, and then the handwritten codex was superseded by print. But as I always say to my students when I'm teaching them manuscripts, by a show of hands, how many of you in this classroom are taking notes by hand? And about 75 to 80% of the class's hands go up. And I say, well, then manuscripts haven't died. You are all scribes. It's simply that their uses have changed. And so to get back to your question about use, what we see throughout the Middle Ages is, is the endurance of the role, just its change in, in use. Um, and, and one more thing, and I, I know this, is, this might seem a bit flippant or silly to, to, to some listeners, but we all handle, maybe it's becoming a little obsolete, but I would say at least on a weekly basis, if you've come into contact with a receipt from your supermarket or CVS, then you're still dealing with scrolls and rolls. Um, uh, yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. So, so it's just a question of, of their changing use. And I think, you know, um, we see roles being used, as, as, I, as I've argued, and um in an article or an essay published in a Harlexton volume a couple of years ago, um, that some of these roles that are stored as such rolled up and held in libraries and then opened out on library, you know, reading room tables, these were actually meant to be hung. Like, what we can consider to be parchment posters for political propagandistic purposes. Um, and in my case, I look at the ones that were used during the Wars of the Roses. Um, they have evidence of nail holes in their upper portions. Um, they don't really make sense to see them just a little portion at a time. Uh, they're not opistographic, which is a great fancy word, which means written on both sides. They're just written on one side. Right. So, you know, if you don't have anything on the back that can, that might tell you something about its display function. Yeah. And so just focusing on the variety of usage of roles, I think kind of cracks open this narrative of, of evolution from role to codex. Right, right. Weitzman. Um, Weitzman. <laughs> I finally, I finally went through all of old like course notes and I mean, not Ooh. just classes I taught, but even classes I took. And before, before there were really, um, there was extensive use of photocopiers. I think that I copied Weitzman's Roland Codex out practically by hand as a means of like learning it. So there, the survival of the manuscript. Um, oh, um, I, I mean, I mentioned I graduated. So my, I got my undergraduate degree in 2003. I still have my notebooks in which I copied out by hand my reading notes from, from articles, which I did right. Xerox. Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. That brings up something else I want to get back to later, which is, um, you know, which is the learning process itself in different types of books. But that's too far from what we're talking about right now. So I want to stick with the display issue for a second. And I wanted to ask you, I mean, you've talked a lot about how chronicles can be used for political propaganda. And maybe you could give us an example of what might be the 
message or um, push that an individual chronicle is making. But I wonder also about things that are um, less political in content, like genealogies, like Peter Poitier. How much evidence is it that they also are displayed for teaching purposes, not specifically propaganda? I'm, I'm, I'm rubbing my hands together because you're asking all the questions that I get into and things that are in various stages of review, which means that these are all like essays and articles that are very much on my brain. Um, so let's get back to what you asked about. What was the first one? Not about, oh, the political ones. Uh, oh, yeah. Give an example of, let's say, you know, here it is. It's 15th century England and someone mm -hmm. wants to convince someone of, you know, the importance of one political party or one political person over another. So mm. how do they do that in a role, in yeah. your role? And in, in, yeah, so there are two that I'll bring up. The first one should be more famous than it is. It's Free Library of Philadelphia, Manuscript Lewis E201. So we all, manuscript scholars, we all know our shelf marks. So this is um, an 18 foot long roll that is, uh, so it's parchment and it's been called the coronation roll of Edward IV. And it is explosive with visual fireworks. At the top of the roll is um, an equestrian image of Edward IV. There are banderoles that say in Latin, biblical quotes that say, this was granted by God. In the beginning was the word. And then we see a history of the world beginning with the creation all the way down like a family tree to Edward IV himself. And just for those who are not up on their Wars of the Roses, um, he became king in 1461 by usurping the throne from Henry VI, who was a Lancastrian. Edward IV was a Yorkist. Um, and so, you know, the, the going belief is that this was something that was produced for his coronation. I cannot, even though the script on it is small, um, so it really does lay out in chronicle, in capsule chronicle fashion, the history of the world down to Edward IV. It's really all about these visual, what I call fireworks. Down the roll are all of his emblems and the heraldry that belongs to him. And then when we get to the bottom of the roll, we just see his name in, encircled by all of these different heraldic arms and devices, which are a form of like para heraldry. They're, they're like heraldry, but adjacent to it. And, uh, and it just continues to tell us how he is the rightful king of England. And, you know, I said its script is small. Um, I'm, you know, uh, I don't think it could be read from a distance, but yeah. I think it needed to be seen from a distance and right. you can't fudge the text. And I'm personally convinced that it would have been hung all 18 feet at once on a structure as they were made, these, you know, temporary structures that were used for processions throughout England on throughout London on ceremonial occasions. Um, and so, so it's sort yeah. of it's the sort of written or um, material accompaniment to a festival or a parade or an entry. Exactly right. Exactly right. As I said, this one should be more famous than it is. I'm shocked that, um, to my knowledge, uh, a monographic approach, a, you know, a really in-depth study devoted to this manuscript itself, this role, uh, has not yet been carried out. Although I will say there is an important book that should be published now or is about to come out by Jacqueline Rasick on genealogical roles in late medieval England, a full book on this. 
So she's mm-hmm. a literary scholar. So this may not be of, of extreme, this particular uh, one may not be of extreme interest to her, but I'm really looking forward to her book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's interesting. What about like, you know, the, the Peter Poite, which is the more common earlier text for roles is yeah. different. It's the genealogy of Christ really, isn't it? It is. Um, so it's a so it's also historical, but it's historical in the biblical sense. And I wonder, do we have any real evidence for these or these roles being hung? No. So this belief originates in an 18th century antiquarian's under, misunderstanding, I believe, of a 13th century obituary written by Peter of Poitiers. So um, I know you know this stuff, Sandra, but I will for our no, audience. Please, please. So, okay. Peter of Poitiers, he taught at the University of Paris. He, according to a prologue that he wrote to the manuscripts that we're about to talk about, He said, look, it's really, really hard to get the history of the Bible into one's own head. And lots of students can't even afford to own their own books. So I've done my students a solid. And what I've decided to do is create an epitome or an abbreviation of the history that is told in the Bible down from from Genesis down to uh, Christ. And I'm going to help you remember it, store it in your mental sack. It's a term that he uses by structuring it diagrammatically according to the family tree, tree of Christ. So that's why it's a, a it's called a compendium historiae in genealogia Christi. So a compendium of history in the form of a genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, in this preface, so clearly there is this, the, the goal is stated that it's, it's uh, didactic, it's for mnemonic purposes, but he does not say anything about the physical form that this will take. Now, we have roughly 160 accounted for versions of this text. And of those 160 versions, many are roles and many are codices. In fact, some of the earliest surviving copies are in codices. And they had an, an, uh, uh, an up-to-date list of all surviving copies has not, to my knowledge, been produced yet. But the scholar who's written the most on Peter of Poitiers is a wonderful art historian, Andrea Vorm, um, W-O-R-M. Let me actually backtrack. So in the 13th century, so after he dies, circa 1225, a guy, Albrecht of Troisfontaine, writes that for the benefit of poor students, uh, he created, so Peter Poitiers, created the genealogy of Christ in the form of skins that were sketched upon. <laughs> and he uses the word skins. Not, and I'm sort of giving away something that I have under review right now, but I'll give it away anyway. Hopefully it'll come out. <laughs> he uses the word skin, pelibus, in pelibus to pingere, sketched upon skins. So fast forward to the 18th century when a French antiquarian um, named Jean Le Bouffe, I believe was his name, great name, says, ah, yes, because um, they could not create books as cheaply as we can now, Teachers used to stretch skins upon the walls and use them to show students whatever it was they were teaching them as almost like we can really, Uh right. And, and so I was thinking about this and, and, you know, we do have examples of hung parchment. Let's think of the Hereford Mapamundi, 
We have a great in a in a Hockley, a manuscript by a poet named Hockleave in the Huntington Library later on in the 15th century, a family wrote out an inventory of their home. And in the hall of their home is hanging a mappa mundi. So we know that people hung up parchment things in their homes and in monasteries in the Middle Ages. But of a genealogy like this one, there's not a lot of evidence for that. Now, I think that some of them were designed to be hung, but there's no hard evidence. I believe that uh, the reason why Albrecht of Troisfontaine used the word pelibus is because he was what he was conveying is that Peter of Poitiers was actually just availing himself of cheap parchment, the skin before it was scraped, before it was ruled, before it was prepared for writing on. He's basically advertising to my mind that he was economical because he understood that he, yeah, this is my, this is my hypothesis. Right, right. And so really what I think is he designed it for use as bo- in both codices and roles. I think that this was a text that was um, from the get-go designed to be written up in either format. Mm-hmm. What about, um, is there any evidence? Could it have been used at all like exalted roles? Mm. Which, um, for those who don't know, these are musical um, roles, music in the form of a role that like roll over a kind of pulpit so you can see the music as it unscrolls. Could, is there any material evidence that the geni- Peter Poitier's geniality could have been used like that for teaching? I believe not only because one of the genius elements to my mind of the exalted roles, um, predominantly 11th, 12th century Italy, I believe, is, and Nino Scomalidze has written really nicely about them, is that the pictures and the text are in opposite directions. So the text is written upright for the clergyman to be able to read it as it descends, it slinks over the edge of his pulpit, and then the images are right side up for the audience. I mean, how inventive is that, I right? I know, and what a great word, slink. That's a that's a good way of describing them, too. Like Very descriptive. Yeah. Um, and, and I haven't seen any, I mean, I haven't looked at all circa 160 or 200 examples of the Peter Poitier's genealogy, but um, I don't know of any that orient the text and the image that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wonder if you we can turn to so roles and codices, or or maybe you have something more you want to say about your work on roles that is um, is interesting to our only, reading. Only one other thing, just because I'm going to I'll, I'll plug myself. So this essay I alluded to for the Harlaxton volume. Um, this is on ceremony and display. I'm sort of forgetting what is it? Performance ceremony and display in late medieval England, edited by Julia, the wonderful Julia Buffy. Is that this role? It's extraordinary. It's it's five foot nine, and whenever I give a talk about it, I like come out to the audience and I say I'm five four, so it's five inches taller than I am, or if I'm wearing heels, two inches taller than I am. And it is astonishing because at the bottom of this, this is we're talking. This is um, uh, uh, again something I believe was created to be a poster. Is a family tree. It looks like um, a Jesse tree, a common way of portraying Christ's genealogy. Another iconography, but it shows the genealogy of Edward the Fourth. This is at the bottom of the roll, and then at the top of it are uh, four or five registers on the left. Scenes from the Old Testament, okay? Nothing new there as far as medieval iconography is concerned. On the right, where we would expect 
each Old Testament scene to be paired up with a New Testament scene. This is a form of pictorial interpretation uh, that Christians did throughout the Middle Ages known as typology, seeing co correspondences between the Old and New Testaments. Instead of New Testament scenes on the right, it's episodes from recent battles in which <laughs> Edward IV was involved. <laughs> I mean, th there's there's a kind of ambition and daring daring do almost to this. So anyway, I say this because I, I think that, again, this underscores the kind of inventiveness with which medieval artists were approaching roles at this time. That's very interesting. I, I want to turn to, like, you know, from an already relatively large subject, the role, to an even larger subject, because I've just read your article called Connoisseurship, Art History, and the Paleographical Impasse in Medieval English Studies. Well, what a huge topic to undertake. Connoisseurship alone has, you know, more well over a century, um, century and a half of literature on it, art history, discipline in itself, paleography, another discipline, Middle English studies, another, I mean, so what led you to undertake this? I mean, I know it grows out of your interest in, in medieval English manuscripts, um, but it's, um, it's, it was very ambitious. Um, do you, <laughs> can you um, give us a little background on this? I can, yeah. As I mentioned earlier in our, in our discussion, I began to see myself as a manuscript studies person uh, when I was an undergraduate and I took a whole semester of paleography with Elizabeth Bryan, um, who is an English literature professor, amazing scholar of manuscripts. You know, from that early period, though I couldn't quite, I couldn't quite put it in scholarly language, I saw that there are similarities between um, the, you know, paleography, reading old scripts, classifying them, taxonomizing, categorizing them. The way that paleography was taught to me was you start with Roman capitals, Roman rustic capitals, and you move on to, you know, Roman cursive, Beneventin, looks you at, et cetera, et cetera. This movement of styles. Right. I saw a parallel between that and what we do in art history or what what was a, a dominant form of art historical analysis in the early 20th century style history, which is in the bones of our discipline. Um, so fast forward 2011, I am just about to finish my dissertation and I'm at a conference devoted to John Gower. I wrote my doctoral dissertation on an illuminated manuscript of John Gower's poetry that's in the Morgan Library. And so I went to this conference in Valladolid in Spain, and I'm sitting next to a scholar, a paleographer, a scholar of Middle English manuscripts, who was talking to me about, you know, all of these big discoveries about the hands of scribes. We can now identify uh, uh, Chaucer's own scribe. This was a, a huge blockbuster discovery by Lynn Mooney in 2000, 2004 at a conference and then published in, in 2006. And I, I turned to this, this other scholar and I said, oh yes, the, the way that paleography is being carried out here is very much like connoisseurship. And I immediately saw her face have a cloud over it as if I had called her um, a dabbler, someone who just likes fine I, wine and cheese. Wow. Mm -hmm. As if I, I had desperately insulted her. Mm. And so that was, so 2011 is when that, that, that conference happened. 
And uh, I realized, wow, we have been thinking about you know, theorizing connoisseurship in art history for 150 years. Um, perhaps we might have something to contribute to paleographers who are doing attributional work, looking at the hands of scribes and saying, just like as if they were artists, this is you know, John Doe, this is Joe Smith. Um, and, and where those paleographers now have debates and they seem to be at what I call an impasse, the paleographical impasse, who's right, who's wrong. I thought, well, let me come in from my understanding as an art historian of these issues um, and see how I could speak to them and, and try to find a resolution, not to improve their methods, but rather to um, find other things to say around whether or not we can agree or disagree that this is the hand of a given scribe. Um, and that was the origin of that article. I said it was 2011. You said we have, um, it was big and huge and 150 years of scholarship on connoisseurship, possibly even more. And so it took me about a decade to do all that reading. Scholarship right. exactly. <laughs> but isn't one of the big problems, I think you lay this out in your article, isn't one of the big problems that um, English scribes, like you may be able to identify different hands and, you know, there might be five different hands in a manuscript, but there are no names. And one of the, um, one of the uh, um, factors of connoisseurship is you get to test your identification with the occasional actual document or signature. I mean, this has been one of the sort of um, unfortunate things of connoisseurship as well, too. But it um, it's really problematic, isn't it, for, doesn't it remain problematic for um, English paleography or English studies? I would argue yes, and that's what I argue in my article. Um, now, this isn't to say that there are no signed documents. One of the, I would say, chief insights of the scholars who are doing the work that I'm, I'm speaking to uh, is uh, they have compared signed documents by civic scribes, so who necessarily for their labor had to sign their work because it's government work. Now, whether they're signing their own name is another right. question. Sometimes it is a supervisor signing to authenticate or authorize the mm -hmm. work of, a, of an, uh, a subordinate. Anyway, I won't get into the weeds there. So it's not, it's not a field without signatures, but those signatures, those names, are for the most part for the purposes of um, administrative and bureaucratic record keeping. They are not appended to literary manuscripts. There are very few literary manuscripts with the names of scribes and um, uh, almost none with the name of names of illuminators. There are uh, 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 two illuminators from the 15th century in England whose names appear on the works themselves. So partly what, um, what I argue is that the pursuit to attribute these manuscripts to names and to hands is out of cultural whack with the ways in which these scribes thought about their labor. Right. We are not really attending with sensitivity to the contours of how they themselves thought about their work. Instead, we're treating them like a 19th century conception of a, an Italian Renaissance artist. Because even, right. even Morelli, you know, this, this famous connoisseur of Italian Renaissance paintings, he had his own 19th century assumptions about the status of the individual hand of Renaissance artists. 
So like the scribe who we can identify who writes the Ellesmere Chaucer, for example, um, just because he wrote the Ellesmere Chaucer, one of the most famous uh, literary texts um, for anyone who um, speaks the English language, is not going to rate him a $21 million sale like a Michelangelo drawing. Um, to take one of the aspects you've dealt with on the relationship between connoisseurship and paleography um, and art history and literary studies. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And so I think, you know, one thing that I've come to understand, I, I spend a lot of time, you know, not just in my home discipline in art history, but also, and I hope respectfully listening to literary scholars. Um, I, I hesitate to call myself an interdisciplinary scholar because I think to be a true interdisciplinarian is means to actually um, understand the history of a discipline and its historiography. And um, I just try my best to read up on the literature by literary scholars of the, the, the works that I'm working on, yeah? I listen to literary scholars and one thing that I've come to understand is that many who, who just have sort of a hazy idea of art history have the current impression that our main concern is iconography and in the interpretation of subject matter, which is a, a big part of what we do. But I think it might come, I hope refreshingly, as a surprise to hear that we have, you know, I hope I'm not overselling us, but really interesting, theoretically informed work about connoisseurship, about authorship of a painting mm -hmm. or about a work of art. I admire so much the works of the scholars that I cite in this article, art historians, who have thought really critically about what the authorship of a work of art is within the culture in which that work mm -hmm. was made. Mm -hmm. Um, and I and I hope that I brought to this conversation the things that we have to say about that that may be of interest to, to literary scholars. Right. And that may be um, applicable as they seek to separate out the hands of an individual literary manuscript, for example. Um, as we were talking about the identification of hands, one of the things that occurred to me in this, and I don't think you actually treat this in your article, is how digitalization, which you do treat in something else I'd like to turn to, how that has made it possible to um, separate hands more easily. And I'm thinking of Lisa Fagan Davis's really interesting work on the five, I think it's now five scribes of the Voynich Codex. Mm -hmm. And that by blowing these images up so much on the screen, um, she's been able to hypothesize about individual hands more than one might be able to do with the visual uh, regular um, sight reading without magnification. Mm. Yeah, this is a really hot button issue in our right. field. Um, and, and I've written very, very critically about artificial intelligence and its intersection with art history in public venues. Um, I, I touched a little bit on it in this article. And, and Lisa Fagan Davis is, is, is an amazing manuscript scholar. I think well, I'll, I'll go back to an experience now, again, going back to the British Library that had a really big impact on me. Someone, as you know, as happens, uh, emailed the, the the manuscripts people at the British Library and said, you know, I found in my family, I guess the attic or wherever, uh, a manuscript. Can I send you some photos and can you tell me if this is actually a medieval manuscript? And got the photos, we printed them out, and I said, 
absolutely not. And they said, well, you know, can we come in and bring you the manuscript? And yes, sure. Looked at the manuscript within a moment. I went, oh yeah, of course this is a medieval manuscript. Now, which one of who was right? I'm not, I'm not going to adjudicate that. But the point is the feeling, the response that I have to a manuscript that is shown in a photograph mm-hmm. versus the manuscripts that I experience in an embodied physical way. Those are two different experiences. And I think that whether or not we decide how valuable um, connoisseurial or attributional or or endeavors, or at least parsing parts of manuscripts, whether or not we decide that that's valuable, I think what needs to come first is a a real exploration of the, what we think of as the affordances or of, of the digital or the distinctions between the reproduction and the work of art itself. And again, I'll go back to to all of our great art historians who have thought in recent years for the last 25 years about how photography actually shapes our understanding of works of art. Mm -hmm. Yeah, photography and film. Um, I'm actually I I actually want to bring up your post your other work. uh, You know, I call it pen to press just because that's what I called my book on pen to press, but on, let's say, hybrid hybrid volumes, hybrid books. I mean, the idea here is similar to your um, revisionist uh, view of role to codex. Mm-hmm. We don't from one to the other. There's, mul- there's centuries of multiple types of print or manuscript. That goes back to the issue of the Weizmann um, or even pre-Weizmann. We start with a wax tab. We start with scroll. We go to a wax tablet. We go to a book. Then we go to the we, Gutenberg galaxy. Gutenberg invents the press. And then we have the digital age. And that's, you know, one to another. That's another really big topic that you've tackled. And I'm so impressed that you've tackled these really really big topics. I think that's kind of unusual, actually. So I wonder if you want, if you can talk a little bit about that volume. I'm now talking about a volume that you edited in Digital Philology of a series of articles with a post, with an introduction and a postscript. I love the postscript by you. Thank you. Well, before I delve into any of the stuff that I've done, I just want to say how forward thinking, how ahead of its time that book is. I mean, that, I keep coming back to it. I didn't even understand how revolutionary pen to press was when I first encountered it when I was an undergrad. And it was only through like becoming a manuscript scholar that I kept, I kept going back to it. And I was like, oh, wow, they're doing something really against the grain here. So I just want to honor that book. Can I, before I answer your question, can I just ask you about how that came about? You know, um, actually, that book wasn't very well received at the time, which is mm-hmm. And um, I mean, Doug and I, we taught at neighboring schools. I taught at Hopkins. He taught at the University of Maryland. And, you know, we wanted to write this kind of, you know, more general book on the materiality, as it were, of late medieval manuscripts. I mean, he's done really super interesting work on that. I was just starting to work on, you know, the sort of, I knew Elizabeth Eisenstein at the same period. She was in Washington. Panda Press was just beginning to be a kind of topic that people were sort of looking at. So 
I can't really recall, you know, completely how it came into being. But these two essays that I then wrote on, you know, I've forgotten what they're called. One is called cross fertilization. Mm -hmm. The other called something like mixing the media. I don't know. We looked for the first time at a lot of books that actually it's like what you said about the free library manuscript that no one had really paid any attention to at all. And in a way, I mean, pen to press is very superficial because it crossed a large, large area and we didn't do really deep case studies or monographic treatment of anything. We kind of, you know, went from book to book to book. So I was very influenced by Kurt Bueller's The 15th Century Book yeah. at the time. Again, a kind of under um, undervalued, unnoticed um, work, I think. And then Elizabeth Eisenstein, who had the more historicist, let's say, you know, from manuscript to print to this to that. There, yes, thank you for your comments about Pen to Press, which I read in your article. Like in the um, connoisseurship article, you reviewed really a vast array of material over the last 25 years on this subject, which is incredibly useful in and of itself. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I should actually give credit to the fact that I wrote about half of that at the start of a fellowship at the National Humanities Center, which was devoted to working on my book. Um, but but it goes to show that when, um, I don't know if people know about the National Humanities Center, but it is devoted to supporting research in the humanities. And the whole deal is you get an office, you sit at your computer, you think all day, they serve you your meals, and you just type into a computer what books you want, and the next day they're there for you. Wow. You're Yep. And so you say, you know, I, 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 I surveyed all of this literature in order to write the, the introduction to the special issue of digital philology. It's because um, I had that amount of, of support, you know, back right. in the day when male yeah. scholars had their wives cleaning up their clothes and ironing and, and feeding them. The National Humanities Center did that for me. <laughs> it's a wonderful place. So anyway, you know, you mentioned that you were inspired by Kurt Bueller, whose um, book on the 15th century century book uh, is pretty underappreciated. So it was published, what was it, exactly two years before Marshall McLuhan. Mm. Gutenberg Galaxy. Your Gutenberg Galaxy. Yours was published, yours and Farquhar's was published two years before Eisenstein's first edition mm -hmm. of Agents of Change, the printing press as an agent of change. Uh, McLuhan and Eisenstein, they wrote these big narratives about rupture and revolutionary change. Exactly. Whereas you, Farquhar and, and Puehler, we're, at, we're you know, really digging into the objects and, and seeing a reality on the grounds that was not all you know, bombs and blasts and rupture. And it's no surprise that those more granular analyses were not as, as widely circulated. So I hope in, in my introduction, uh, which explores the coexistence of manuscripts and print well into the modern period. Um, the, the articles in that special special volume uh, go from 1450 to 1850. Right. I hope it shows the endurance of what you, Farquhar and Bueller, were really staking out. What I wanted to also achieve in that special issue was to show that attentiveness, as the authors in their, in their article show, attentiveness 
to the way that these books look, really thinking about them not through you know, social change, not thinking about them necessarily sociologically or as a cultural historian, but as thinking about them as an art historian can tell us things about the value of these books beyond simply, oh, um, if it's handwritten, it must have been fancy and a coffee table book and it had prestige. Uh-uh, no, handwritten book manuscripts copied from printed books could serve a variety of functions just in the way that roles served a, a variety of functions throughout the Middle Ages. Yeah. Right. And the material, it's the materiality um, of it, of these various um, things that you've come back to. And that relates to what you've said also about um, identification of scribes and also about your work on roles. Maybe we could conclude. We only have a few minutes by you're telling our listeners about a little about your postscript. Because I think it also raises questions for how we think about the computer and the manuscript and the role um, mm -hmm. as we move. And even how we think about learning from these various different material tools. Yeah. Um, why don't you, if you want to, you want to introduce the postscript. It's very short if people want to read it. <laughs> well. Yeah. Yeah, and, and all credit is due to the general editor of Digital Philology, a wonderful scholar, uh, Deborah McGrady, who was so happy to put to allow this to happen at last minute. So effectively, um, she was going through proof. She has a hawk's eye, really close looking, and she noticed that on the copyright page of this journal, which was moving to an exclusively digital format, was a statement about how this paper used in this publication meets the requirements of, and then you read like a serial number, the permanence of paper. So this is a standard that's used for archival paper. Um, journals use it just to ensure that the paper is of quality, good enough that to- That last several centuries, I believe. Exactly. And yet it was appearing that statement in a fully digital journal. And, and a so digital journal that had been digital, if I remember, for six or seven years already. About four years, but yes, you're, okay. yes, you're right. Yes, so that had lingered. So I just thought to myself, my God, can you imagine if a bibliographical scholar in 50 years from now finds the purely digital issues and notice that they have these, um, what we could call vestigial statements about the endurance of the paper on which they're quote unquote printed, but they were never printed. I thought I have to speak to how this is, um, how it chimes with the core issue at the center of this special journal issue, which was manuscripts that copy from print, often in the copying, retaining features that are specific to print. So it'll say something like, in a, in a scribal hand, this book was printed by Caxton here. And you're looking at it and you're going, this wasn't printed. This was written. <laughs> it's a manuscript, right? Mm -hmm. What occurred to me is the scholar in the future reading this um, will say, oh my goodness, I need to go. Well, how come these have all disappeared? It's like... <laughs> Fahrenheit, you know, 451, whatever, they somehow all got destroyed, but it existed in print and searching forever to find the print version. Totally, totally. And then, and then eventually they find my little postscript and they go, oh, hang on. What's going on here is the fact that there, and what I, what I think is really going on, even though that was just um, an oversight that it had lingered in the copyright pages, 
was this moments of the early 21st century in which we're not sure about the authority that we want to confer on purely digital publications. And so for a while, it was actually duly published, this journal. It was both printed and it was on and it was digital before it moved to exclusively digital. And how the way that this whole journal looks, even aside from this error in the copyright page, its layout, it's it's what we call its bibliographic code, you know, the, the packaging, the, 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 the font, it all looks like a printed journal. Right, exactly. And that's our expectation for authority. And that's where I think, so that's where I think being an art historian, speaking to these broader issues that are relevant to scholars and literary studies and historical studies can be really valuable because we attend to the meaning of form. Inherently, what an art historian does is pay attention to form. And I look at this journal and I see all the ways in which its font, its layout are just another form of image. I mean, this is probably too big a question, but it occurred to me, and I'm not sure I really thought about it before, after I read your postscript and some of the articles in this issue. Do you think that uh, having access to everything and your bibliography, everything is in Google Scholar, having access to everything online and reading everything online promotes a different and maybe even lesser learning experience than having the books and taking notes by hand on them. I'll be, you know, it's a too big a question to have a definitive answer, but I wonder what your initial take on that is. My initial take on it is to attempt to be as inclusive as possible. I think that, you know, we might have what, what I tend to think of as, as potentially an ableist predisposition to writing things out by hand or, you know, an adherence to the value of the printed book, the, the prestige of the printed book. I think that there are so many diverse ways to engage with images and the written word that um, what we might lose from not interacting with one medium, we can gain something else from interacting and, with it. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it, um, that you might not have the same learning experience, but it will diversify the learning experience. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's great. And I think that actually all the things we've talked about, diversity of media, the multi multiplicity of their uses, this is a, a kind of current that runs through your all of your work. Thank you. Yeah, but, I hope so. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. Do you have anything you want to say in conclusion? I think this is so interesting. I'm I'm very impressed and I'm I'm delighted. Um that we've had this chance to talk and I really was thrilled to be able to read more closely some of your things. I hope that our listeners, they can certainly all read the postscript because it's so interesting and amusing. But when we publish the note for the podcast, we'll put a few of your bibliographical references on it too for people to go to. Fabulous. Um, and please don't hesitate to ask me for, for any references. I'm sure uh, my publisher would be um, very pleased if I also said my monograph by the University of Pennsylvania Press is The Art of Illusion, Illuminators and the Making of English Literature. So um, there's a plug for my book as well. Okay, Sonia. I mean, thank you so much for giving the time to do this and for a really interesting conversation. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed it.
Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I hope here's to more conversations in the future. Okay, great. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. This has been a Lesson in Your podcast. That's all for today, but you can find us at Tefaf Maastricht this June 25th to 30th. We also have a new acquisition of four vibrant miniatures painted in Bologna in the second quarter of the 14th century by two of the finest Bolognese artists, the master of the B18 and the so-called Hungarian master. You can see that on our website. Our jewelry update is coming in June, so stay in touch for more information on that as well. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast and even to share this on social media or with a friend who might enjoy the episode's topic. You can find out more about our manuscripts on our website, and you can also find and purchase a copy of the publication Pen to Press, which was discussed at length on this podcast episode. Please reach out with your comments and questions through our social media at Les Thanks for listening.